What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And today we have a very important guest, especially in light of uh, current events. We have Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who is a virologist at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Welcome to the show, Angela, and so grateful to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. Now, if you recognize her name, you probably have seen her in a number of places because she is uh, being tapped for her in-depth knowledge in this space quite regularly. Um, We will go ahead and jump right in because I know we want to be respectful of your time and respectful of the listener's time. I'd love to start off with the fact that um, we're talking about coronavirus or COVID-19. I'm sure people have seen this in spades on the news and they've read about it. Can we start by maybe talking about some misperceptions versus what's true about this you know, debilitating virus? But I think there's, there's probably a lot of hype about it. And I've also seen some you know, untruths out there as well. And let's go to someone like you that really knows everything and anything about this. Yeah, so uh, early on in the outbreak, there there have been a lot of conspiracy theories um, and uh, and pretty bad takes in, in terms of understanding where this virus came from and uh, whether it has, you know, some sort of nefarious purpose behind it. Um, this virus, the genetic data suggests, is a naturally emergent virus that's spilled over from animals uh, into humans and has since been being transmitted from human to human. This is a natural process, uh, so this is not, it's likely not the result of a laboratory accident, and it's certainly not uh, a biological weapon that got, that went awry. Um, I think that a lot of this type of misinformation, these conspiracy theories can be really, really damaging in terms of the the global um, coordination that is needed to respond to a public health threat like this. Yeah, that, that is helpful. Thank you for sharing that, because I know that I've seen a number of those as well, and we, do, we don't need any other mistruths about it. Now, this started off in China, or at least I, I believe that's where it started. Uh, I guess the good news that I read about the other day was the fact that it sounds like the, vir- the spread of the virus is starting to slow in China. It's starting to unfortunately pick up in the United States. How bad do you expect it will get in the United States before it gets better? So I think we're right now, um, because of our recently acquired testing capacity, um, finally able to start addressing how prevalent uh, cases are in the United States. Um, I think the real question uh, in terms of how bad it will get really is going to be heavily dependent on how many cases there are in the United States, where they are, and how much community transmission has been occurring. Um, right now, I'm in Seattle, and uh, certainly this is the, the, the place right now in the U.S. that we know that there are the largest number of cases. Um, that's likely because one of the first cases uh, imported into the United States in mid-January um, was a, a patient here in, in the Seattle area. Um, I suspect that the reason we're not seeing cases widely in other communities is because we haven't had the, the capacity to test um, for this virus in those other communities. And now that the test has been rolled out and is becoming increasingly available, we are going to start to see cases. And certainly there has been um, evidence of community transmission 
in California and New York. So I think it's, it's very likely that we're going to see a lot of cases throughout the United States. Um, and really, the, the response is going to depend on how many cases there are, uh, identifying other communities where there may be undetected cases, um, and, and trying to figure out how to contain uh, viruses in those communities. And if that's not possible, trying to figure out how to mitigate the severity and the consequences for public health in general. Well, that's helpful to know. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we do learn from uh, our uh, friends in China and can slow this down. I guess just for timestamp purposes, the goal is to, to get this recording out in the next few days, but we're recording this on March 5th. So just in case you're listening to this after the fact, then you'll know when we had the conversation. I know one of the things that a lot of the public expects, and it seems like with our state of medicine today, it should go faster. But can we talk a little bit about, you know, the ambition around creating a vaccine for something like this that cropped up so quickly? I mean, I, I guess it's been around for a while, but the, the sort of pandemic aspect of it is cropped up quickly. And maybe talk a little bit about why the process takes so, such a long time and why it actually may not even be delivered in the United States in time to combat this go around of it. Right. So the, the process of actually designing the vaccine um, is, is very rapid. And one thing that's notable about this particular outbreak compared to other outbreaks that have happened recently, such as the 2014 Ebola epidemic in West Africa um, or the original SARS uh, coronavirus outbreak in 2003, is that our technology has enabled us to immediately, almost immediately, get sequence data about what this virus actually is. And that data can be used to very rapidly design a vaccine. Unfortunately, designing the vaccine in this sense is somewhat of the easiest part. Um, so a company called Moderna has designed a vaccine and the first patient in Seattle was enrolled yesterday, March 4th, in a clinical trial to test this. The problem is that vaccines take a long time to test. Um, it takes your immune system several weeks to uh, uh, produce immunity against the vaccine. Um, and then those patients who are given the vaccine in a clinical trial have to be monitored for months at a time to determine if the vaccine is safe and if it's effective. Once that is determined, um, then we can begin talking about approving it. In this case, I'm assuming that the FDA is going to move rapidly to provide regulatory approval for distributing it to the public but nonetheless, we still have to wait to get the data that shows the vaccine is safe and it actually works. Because if uh, on a large scale, if a vaccine that is not safe or does not work is rolled out to the population at large, that can be tremendously harmful for public health. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That whole balancing speed with safety and, and making sure we go through the process, even if it's a agile and fast moving process. I guess one of the other questions I'd like to ask as a follow-on to that is, you know, we've been told to wash our hands regularly, you know, use Purell, uh, staying home when we're sick, obviously avoiding non-essential plane travel. What else can the average person do to help uh, slow this down or avoid the uh, coronavirus? So certainly there is um, social distancing measures that people can take. Uh, that is um, not shaking hands with a person, for example, when you meet them. Uh, changing our behaviors subtly so that we're not physically interacting with people around us. Um, I would recommend that large uh, optional events, um, such as here in Seattle, Emerald City Comic Con, which you know has a hundred thousand people coming to it, um, the, things like that should be canceled. 
at least until we have a better understanding of what the prevalence of, of these infections and cases really are. Um, another thing people can do is, is just really, uh, if, it, if it's possible, they can stay home um, and telecommute. And I would hope that most employers have a plan to allow this. Unfortunately, um, one of the things that really needs to happen is to provide financial support for people who uh, may not be able to telecommute um, or who might not have sick leave. Because I think that uh, the, the financial insecurity um, that some people have, uh, they can't afford. They literally can't afford to take two weeks off of work or work from home um, or have or have sick leave if they're not, if they're not, you know, in the hospital. Um, I think that this is going to be a real challenge uh, here in the United States because we lack many of the social safety nets that would otherwise be able to protect those people. So one thing I'm encouraging um, employers to do is to consider, uh, or the government actually also, to incentivize employers to um, allow people in affected communities to stay home, um, to, not, to not go out. Uh, especially if they have symptoms or they think they may have been exposed. Well, that, that makes sense. And it is obviously a catch 22 and especially for people that work in retail or manufacturing, that is tricky, but I know there are a lot of other folks that could benefit from that. This a related question. We do see a lot of emergency states being declared, schools being closed, you know, similar to businesses closing for safety precaution. On a scale of one to 10, where should people's actual fear meter be right now, in your opinion? That's hard to say. It should not be a 10. That's good. <laughs> I am, my, my concerns largely have to do uh, much more so with the, with the response, the public health response to this virus um, than they do with the virus itself. Uh, now, certainly, if you have, uh, if you yourself or uh, you have a loved one, um, who is in a high-risk category for severe disease, meaning that they're over the age of 60, uh, or that they have a pre-existing medical condition, such as diabetes, um, uh, COPD or asthma, cardiovascular disease, things like that, um, those people should be very, very concerned uh, because certainly if their loved one or themselves are exposed, they have a much higher risk of having uh, a negative clinical outcome. Um, I, I really am hesitant to give it a number through one, one through 10, because I think that some of the things that could actually be really harmful are in fact driven by fear. Um, you know, for example, the lines coming out of Costco and everybody buying up every roll of toilet paper, um, or people going into hospitals and taking gloves and surgical masks and supplies that need to be reserved for healthcare workers to protect themselves. Um, there have been reports of that sort of thing, and that type of behavior is it gives me a cause for concern a lot more than the virus itself does. Well, that's good. I mean, I've, I've seen a number of people saying, be calm and, you know, don't panic. That, I think, gives a little bit more insight as to why that is so important, particularly that, you know, not buying up valuable resources that people might need or taking them from hospitals where they could be more highly allocated. I guess related to one of the earlier questions this is for the broader sort of, uh, you know, medical industry, given the complexities of vaccine development, you know, we did talk about the fact that this is a fast moving process now, and we've learned a lot. What do you think all sectors, so public, pharma, life sciences, scientific community, even news outlets, can learn from this COVID-19 outbreak that maybe in the future we can be a little nimbler um, next time when we're responding to something like this globally? 
Well, in terms of uh, investment into public health, um, I think it's clear that that we really need more of that. Um, you know, the the budget um, that President Trump has proposed has heavy cuts to the CDC, the NIH, um, and other uh, government funding agencies that that are responsible for these types of public health responses. I think one of the reasons that we may not have a vaccine, for example, or we, why we had to start from scratch essentially with this is that previously nobody could get funding to actually roll out a vaccine for the original SARS coronavirus. Um, and th we saw that too during the Ebola outbreak where there had been a vaccine developed by Canada that is very effective and now has gone through clinical trials and has been really important in terms of our efforts to contain the Ebola outbreak that occurred in the Democratic Republic of Congo recently. Um, that virus, uh, that vaccine uh, was not available because there was no financial incentive um, and no government investment in bringing it to market prior to the 2014 Ebola epidemic. So we, we have tools already that scientists are working on, um, but there is a lack of public will and a lack of funding available to bring those things uh, to the market and to test those things so that they're ready to go when we have uh, an epidemic like this. Um, I think in terms of pharmaceutical companies, it's really tough because obviously a company is not able to invest a lot of money developing something without the government support that it, it will even break even. Um, it's very difficult to ask a private company that has to answer to investors um, to, to basically do a lot of work for free that may not be ever necessary. So I think that uh, the main thing for me, the take home, is that there really needs to be um, major investment into both basic science as well as public health um, and interventions for these uh, epidemics because there are going to be more and more of them uh, in the future as we expand throughout the globe. We're a very global world and climate change continues to disrupt ecosystems, um, causing uh, an increased likelihood of more of these emerging pathogens. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing some of our pharma and biotech clients doing more of these public partnerships, maybe not necessarily as focused on that deeper investing, especially, you know, when the, uh, the financial return may not be there, but just knowing it's, it's the right thing to do. But uh, hopefully we do see more of that and we do learn that lesson coming out of this. I guess you just touched on this, uh, but I wanted to ask a question and, and, you know, good connecting of the dots with the global warming and, and the environmental impact, but it does seem like we're living through an era where pandemics or global health threats are greater. Um, I'm assuming that there are not fewer and, and, you know, what does the science tell us around this beyond maybe just the, uh, the global warming piece? Yeah, so um, specifically for this virus, the most closely related virus to this is a virus that was found in bats in 2017 in China. Um, it was actually in a different province of China, Yunnan province, that is uh, quite distant from Hubei province where this virus emerged. This suggests that in, in many wild, there are many viruses in wildlife reservoirs, uh, in wild animals, that have the potential to emerge as human pathogens. And we think that's what happened here, either through contact with a bat or contact with another animal that may have uh, carried a related virus. Um, as we continue to develop new spaces, wild spaces, and as climate change continues to cause habitat, uh, habitats to change, um, that disrupts ecosystems and forces us um, into closer contact with 
many of these wild animals that would normally carry these viruses. Every, every species on earth has viruses that they carry, um, that they have evolved with. Um, and when that virus uh, encounters a new potential host, sometimes we end up with, with what we're seeing now, um, an epidemic of a pathogen that we've never seen before that causes disease in people. Um, so I think that as, you know, the way that the world works, people are incredibly mobile. Um, we're developing new areas of the planet and climate change is disrupting these ecosystems. That is a recipe for guaranteed um, future emergent pathogens. And whether it's a pathogen that we already know about, such as Ebola virus emerging in West Africa, where there was previously never known to be Ebola virus epidemics, um, or a novel coronavirus that we've never seen before other than a closely related uh, bat virus, um, I think that we're going to be looking at a lot more of these types of epidemics of emergent pathogens in the years to come. So all the more reason, I guess, to make sure that we've got a nimble vaccine development and approval process and all the more reason we're thankful for people like you in this world. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. And I, I would just like to close that out by saying that we can do something about this and that is be prepared. And we need to, you know, incentivize um, companies to, to work on these projects um, and not not just hope that they'll do it for the good of humanity, um, because also you know, the government can play a powerful role. They can incentivize development of vaccines and therapeutics that, that we could uh, deploy rap more rapidly. Um, they can fund uh, basic research that allows us to have more knowledge prior to an epidemic occurring and may even allow us to predict epidemics. So I think um, my take home message is that we just need as a society to uh, really push for more investment in, in this type of research so that we can be more prepared. Well, that's great. And I think we'll have some of the right people listening in on this. Um, speaking of, for my last question, I know that per our opening, you, we talked about sort of the misperceptions and the conspiracy theories. I know you've been on a number of these very trustworthy news outlets, but uh, any places that you would suggest that people want to go and find out more about the latest developments and making sure that they're getting the right information so they can be as prepared as possible. Yeah, so certainly um, places like the WHO and the CDC are, of course, important sources of information. And really, uh, if, if people want to make sure that they are getting the, the basic facts, um, then those are great places to go. I certainly recommend following experts on Twitter, and I'm happy to send you a list of, of people that I follow who I think are providing reliable information. I do realize though that for the average person without a scientific background, it's very difficult to do that. So my recommendation to folks is to, um, when they're considering whether they should listen to somebody or not, um, what is their background? Ask yourself, uh, what's their background? Where, are, where do they work? Um, what kind of job do they have? What have they published on? Uh, what is their publication record like? What is their expertise? And how do their colleagues talk about them? Um, so I recommend that people, uh, when they're looking for experts to follow on social media, um, really consider some of those questions uh, when they're trying to determine whether somebody's reliable or not. And I'm also happy to send a list, again, of people that I follow um, who I have vetted using those similar practices. Well, that would be great if you wouldn't mind. And uh, to that end, I am very happy that uh, and confident in talking to 
uh, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who is a virologist at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Uh, thank you so much, Angela, for spending the time with us. Really appreciate the insights. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show, and we look forward to getting your, uh, your list. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.